Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, an exploration of the Book of Samuel. This series is a production of Pardes North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Newstein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Newstein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our Pardes podcast on Sefer Shemuel. Last time, we read the tragic events of Chapter 4. The Israelites were defeated in battle by the Philistines. Chofni and Pinchas both died on that day, just as the man have God had prophesied to Eli in Chapter 2. The Ark was taken captive, and, presumably, Shiloh, the site of the national shrine, was destroyed. The destruction of Shiloh was spelled out more explicitly in Tehillim chapter 78, which we considered last time, which viewed the destruction through more of a political lens. That is to say that with the destruction of Shiloh, the power of Ephraim as the major tribe in ancient Israel began to decline and Yehuda began to emerge. Eventually, the psalmist tells us Yehuda would emerge as the dominant tribe, David would be chosen as king, and God's house would be built in permanent form at Jerusalem, finally taking the place of Shiloh and the national shrine, the Mishkan, that was destroyed. There is another reference to the destruction of Shiloh in the Hebrew Bible, and that is from the book of Jeremiah, Yirmiyahu. Yirmiyahu lived approximately five centuries after the events of our chapter, towards the end of the first temple period, and he spent much of his career attempting to convince his contemporaries to change their ways, but to no avail. Eventually, the temple was destroyed and the first commonwealth came to an end at the hand of the Babylonians. In chapter 7 of the book of Jeremiah, an incredible and astonishing event is preserved. God tells the prophet to position himself in the very courtyard of the temple in Jerusalem and to proclaim its doom. As Jeremiah puts it, the people are relying on an illusion. That illusion being that simply the temple building itself will guarantee their survival. As he puts it, the people have a mantra, which he quotes in verse number four of chapter seven, a lying mantra, as it were, lying words, Heichal Hashem, Heichal Hashem, Heichal Hashem, Hema, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these buildings. And the people of Israel have convinced themselves that the temple, by virtue of itself and for no other reason, will guarantee their survival, even as the Babylonians besiege the city, because God, as it were, would never dare to destroy his house. But Jeremiah warns them that that is not the case. They must execute justice between a person and his fellow. They must not oppress the stranger, the orphan, and the widow, or shed the blood of the innocent. They must not follow other gods. Then and only then will God let them dwell in this place, in the land that he gave to their ancestors for all time. 
But unfortunately, the people instead rely on illusions. Haganov ratzoach v'naofi hishavea l'asheker v'kater l'baal. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and swear falsely, sacrifice to Baal and follow other gods? Come to stand me in this house bearing my name and saying, we are safe. Safe to do all of these abhorrent things? Is this house then, which bears my name like a den of thieves? As for me, declares the Lord, I have been watching. Jeremiah says, effectively, the people of Israel believe that they can, as it were, get away with murder and then simply present their sacrifices at the temple, go through the motions of devotion, as it were, and God will show favor to them. But Jeremiah warns them that that is not the case. Verse number 12, chapter 7, Just go to my place at Shiloh, where I had established my name formally. See what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. I will do to the house which bears my name on which you rely, to the place which I gave to you and your ancestors, just as I did to Shiloh, which is to say it will be destroyed. And I will cast you out of my presence as I cast out your brothers, the whole brood of Ephraim. Effectively, Yirmiyahu identifies the issue being the temple becoming some sort of a talisman, as it were, some sort of a good luck charm, as it were, that the people of Israel put their trust in even as they go about their nefarious behavior. And he reminds us pointedly that that is precisely what happened at Shiloh. And now we can, of course, begin to connect the dots. Remember when Israel was defeated by the Philistines in our chapter, and the elders of Israel said, why has God allowed us to be defeated? A classic question in a biblical frame, where the answer to the question must include some sort of a renewed commitment to change behaviors for the better. But instead, what the elders recommend is the easy route. Bring the ark from Shiloh, it will enter into our midst and save us from our enemies. Effectively, Jeremiah is indicating the causes that led to the capture of the ark and the destruction of Shiloh were still prevalent 500 years later when the temple stood at Jerusalem. When we put our trust in a building, when we convince ourselves that the means, as it were, is as valuable as the ends, then that is a sure recipe for destruction. So whether it is Shiloh, the ark being taken captive, or the destruction of the temple, Jeremiah says it is precisely the same issue. What God desires is that we become the best people that we can possibly become. Everything else is extrinsic and external. And a temple which is devoid of those fundamental values is a worthless building and nothing more. And so Shiloh is destroyed, 
and so the ark is taken captive. And in this vision, Jeremiah chapter 7, of course, this is not a political interpretation of those events, but a spiritual interpretation of those events, alerting us to the true issues that have to be addressed in the story. Of course, methodologically, it also highlights the fact that the Hebrew Bible is a self-referential and cross-referential text, which is to say, we may be reading our version of the story, but you can be assured that there are other places in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew Bible, which will shed light on our particular story and offer us more layers of meaning. We now turn our attention to the events of chapter 5, which sees the captive ark brought to Ashdod. The Philistines took the ark of God and they brought it into the temple of Dagon and they set it up beside Dagon, which is their idol. Dagon, of course, sounds like it might have to do with fish, Dagim, and one interpretation is that the Philistines worshipped a fish god, of course, they are a coastal people and a seafaring people, so that could very well make sense. The other interpretation is that Dagon has to do with Dagan, which is grain, and in fact, Dagon was a grain god. Obviously, every ancient people needs a grain god in order to guarantee their survival and their sustenance, and we will return to this other possibility a little bit later. The next day, the Ashdodites awaken and they discover to their horror that Dagon, their idol, is lying face down on the ground in front of the Ark of the Lord. They picked up Dagon and restored him to his place. On the next day, they discovered to their horror that once again, Dagon was lying prone on the ground in front of the Ark of the Lord, but this time, the head and both hands of Dagon were cut off, lying on the threshold. Only Dagon's trunk was left intact. It seems as if God, as it were, is speaking to the Philistines in the language that they understand. They are, of course, pagans. They are idolaters, and they regard the ark, as it were, as being synonymous with the God of Israel. The capture of the ark was therefore the capture and the defeat of the God of Israel himself. And so now God begins to work subtly to indicate to the Philistines that, in fact, he has not been defeated at all. First, Dagon, their God, is thrown down before the ark, and then Dagon loses his head and his hands, as it were, his ability to know and his ability to act. And it seems as if the God of Israel is emerging with more power than the Philistine God. But then it gets worse. Havoc is wrought among the people of Ashdod, and they are stricken with what the text reports in Hebrew as Aphulim, this word in the original Hebrew is regarded as being so shocking that it's actually never read publicly in that fashion, but is replaced by another word, tichorim. And the word tichorim will occur explicitly in chapter 6, verses 11 and 17, often translated and understood and interpreted as meaning hemorrhoids. 
So the people of Ashdod are stricken with hemorrhoids that are incredibly uncomfortable. They decide that the ark will no longer remain in their midst since God has prevailed against them and against Dagon, their Lord. And they gather all of the Philistine lords and determine that the ark must be taken to the Philistine city of Gut. And there it goes. But as soon as it arrives, it causes a great panic. And once again, the people of the city, young and old, are struck with hemorrhoids. The ark then moves to Ekron. Once again, the people of Ekron are stricken. Everywhere the ark goes, there is the panic of death that pervades the city. The hand of God had fallen heavily upon them. Those that did not die were stricken with hemorrhoids in verse number 12, such that the outcry of the city went up to the heavens. Now, it is the case, of course, that hemorrhoids are uncomfortable, but they are rarely lethal. So perhaps what we're dealing here with is something that arises as a result of the hemorrhoids and then becomes actually more dangerous and actually deadly. In any case, chapter 6 reports that the Ark of the Covenant of God remained in the territory of the Philistines for seven months, wreaking havoc wherever it went. And as a result of that, the Philistines decide that they will attempt to return the Ark to the Israelites. So clearly in the story, the God of Israel prevails. There are, of course, other interpretations as to exactly what this plague is. What can be said with certainty is the following. Tichorim, or hemorrhoids, is a valid interpretation. It seems to be attested to by the text itself, as I pointed out in chapter 6, verses 11 and 17. Some of the moderns understand that there might be another possible way of reading the deadly destruction which falls upon the Philistine cities. And this modern reading goes back to the original description, which is afolim. The root of that word has to do with swelling or swellings. Later on, it will become clear that the Philistines want to return the Ark to Israelite territory. They are advised by their priests and diviners not to do so empty-handed. Rather, return the Ark with an asham, with an expression, an admission, an offering of guilt, such that they will be healed. What shall we return with it? They ask their instructors, and they are told five golden hemorrhoids and five golden mice, in verse number four of chapter six, must be prepared and returned with the ark as an expression of our guilt, such that the plague will cease. And that's, in fact, what they prepare. A new wagon is set up. And cows that have never borne the yoke are chosen to lead it. Their calves, these are milking cows actually, their calves remain behind. And the Philistines now create, as it were, a test 
to ascertain whether it is in fact the hand of God that has brought the plague upon them. The Ark of the Lord and the golden objects are placed on the new wagon. The cows begin to draw the wagon even as their calves are shut up behind and the cows go straight ahead along the way to Beit Shemesh. They went along a single high road, verse number 12, lowing as they went, which is to say, expressing longing for the calves which they left behind, but they do not veer to the right or to the left, and the Philistine lords walk behind this procession until the border of Beit Shemesh, which is an Israelite town. The ark arrives in Beit Shemesh. The people of Beit Shemesh are harvesting their wheat in the valley, and they suddenly see that the ark has returned. The wagon arrives at the field of Yehoshua of Beit Shemesh, and there there was a great stone. The wood of the cart is split up. The cows are offered as a burnt offering to God, and the Levites take down the ark and the golden gifts that accompany it. The people of Beit Shemesh offer sacrifice on that day. Some of the moderns explain that the presentation of the mice gift along with the hemorrhoid quote-unquote gift actually indicates a link between the two but it's actually not hemorrhoids that are being referred to, but rather quote-unquote swellings as in the original Hebrew. And the theory goes that in fact swellings may be a reference to the bubonic plague. The bubonic plague is spread by fleas that are attached to rodents. The rodents are infected. The fleas ingest the bacteria, and then carry it to a human host. And once a human being has caught the plague, they may present what's called buboes, which is swellings of the lymph nodes in the groin, the underarms, the neck. If it is not treated, death is assured within about a week. And it wasn't really until the modern era that the plague was brought under control through the introduction of antibiotics. So it's quite possible that we're not simply talking about the discomfort of hemorrhoids, but truly something lethal which is visited upon the Philistines by the Ark of the Lord. In any case, the message is straightforward. The Philistines may have captured this object, but God is not the object. God is the God of all the earth, and his power is unlimited. Something as innocuous as a hemorrhoid, or perhaps a flea, can in fact bring about a much more lethal end than anything the Philistines could have anticipated on the battlefield. So though they were completely convinced that they had defeated the God of Israel, in fact, what turned out was the precise opposite, that God defeats them, but through very, very subtle means. There are no supernatural miracles. There are no bolts of lightning. There are no plagues visited upon Egypt, but only something small 
and incredibly dangerous. And ultimately, that is enough to convince the Philistines to return the Ark to Israelite territory in order to save themselves from further destruction. Next time, we'll continue this story and see how it ends for the people of Beit Shemesh before considering what happens next. Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, a production of Parties North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network. If you liked what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.